Christians. How many of you, how many of you adults took donuts instead? Because, you know, when you see those little donuts, it's just those little devils. Anybody? No? Nobody? Okay. When Danielle has them in the house, the kids, I, it's just, it's too tempting. I, one of those things always has to go down. So, all right, Isaiah, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah 49. (laughs) Okay, Isaiah 49. Let's review very quickly. The Lord has been um, talking through the servant. And we noted that the servant is the Lord himself. We've seen that in previous sections. And in, uh, this is the second of our servant song. The first servant song, the Lord is talking about the servant. And here in the second servant song in Isaiah 49, it's the servant who is talking. Now, we're going to have some more of these servant songs to come. And the servant, as we will come to... Isaiah is a brilliant author, and he's not going to give you all the information about the servant in the first go. He's going to build anticipation. He's going to create some mystery. And as you read, you're going to have questions. Who is this person? What can he be like? How is he going to do this? And with every song, mystery is compounded. This is, uh, as we see here, a world ruler. Uh, in, in every sense of the term, we have world rulers today. What we really mean is they rule a portion of the world. And among the portions, yes, they have a bigger portion than others do. But this ruler, this servant, will... Um, receive worldwide acclaim. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Everybody will worship him. One of his chief objectives, as we learned last week, is to restore his nation. Just so we can kind of catch a little context here. Go to verse 6 to prove what I was saying before. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. We're told that kings, verse uh, 7, shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This servant will receive worldwide worship. And we studied last week about how when the servant comes to receive worldwide acclaim, the, one of the first points on his to-do list, one of his first checklist items, is to give special attention to the covenant people of Israel. He made promises to them dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And though at times those promises have been partially fulfilled, They've never been chiefly, ultimately fulfilled. God made promises about 
possessing the land as an eternal inheritance and so forth. And so we have come to the conclusion that there's parts of God, God's promises that remain yet to be fulfilled. And God is a God who keeps his word. He is going to fulfill his word and his promises. And so one of the agenda items of this servant is to fulfill what God says he would do. Well, that all is in the future for this nation. And this nation is admittedly hurting. Put your finger here in Isaiah 49 and turn back with me in the Bible to Psalm 73. This, the writer of this psalm, his name is Asaph. He wrote a lot of our psalms. He was uh, a man of chief importance. And he says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he acknowledges that God is good. And keep your finger in Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, we're told the same thing. God is good. He's going to return. He's going to restore the fortunes of the land. He's going to fulfill his promises. Now, look at verse 14. Look at verse 14 of Isaiah 49. Keep your finger in Isaiah 73, okay? He says in verse 14, but Zion said, this is my people, my people have said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. They are hard-pressed by the trials that surround them, for sure. And they've looked at their current circumstance and seen that it's not matching what God promises will happen. Now, I want you to know that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon at all. Go back to Psalm 73, like I told you. Remember, this was written before Isaiah 49. And the people could have easily gone back and read Psalm 73. It was part of their canon at the time. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had nearly stumbled. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw what was going on, that people who do wrong are prospering, and here I am doing right, and I'm not. I'm sliding, I'm drowning. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. The idea of fatness was of prosperity. Sleekness was that of richness. They are, they're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They, here I am worrying over what are admittedly slight little sins. I can imagine Asaph, for example, feeling guilty in his conscience because he neglected to tithe a certain thing 
Or he feels guilty in his conscience because there was a, a, a point of the law, which would be very hard to fulfill, that he fudged on a little bit. And here he is, worrying over slight little spiritual nuances, and the world around him is committing huge sins, huge acts of iniquity, and they don't care. In fact, they're celebrating in it, and in their celebration of it, they seem to be prospering. Let's read. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. They set their mouths against the heavens. Let's go down to verse 13. He says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says that he wanted to shout out of his frustration, but he kept that frustration bottled up for the sake of those who might be listening, for the sake of his children. Verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast toward you. Now, there is resolution. He's going to say that the Lord brought him out of this, but He's not hiding the fact that in his frustration, he was not acting right toward the Lord. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God breaks through and starts talking to to him right here. And then he says, you guide me. And he's talking back again to God with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph was a Levite. Levites were not allowed to have an inheritance of land. This put the Levites in an awkward position because they were dependent on the goodwill of God's people to support them. And this Levite is saying, I don't have an earthly portion. I don't have land. I can't go cultivate a farm. But God, you, you are my retirement plan. (laughs) You are my portion. You are the one that holds me up. And even though he was frustrated and brutish, the Lord held him back up and put his feet on the rock and settled his soul. Now let's go back to Isaiah 49. What I'm trying to show you is the continuity of Scripture on this point. This is a universal struggle that God's people have battled with over the years. And here, we're separated by several centuries. And the people of Zion are hearing these promises, and they're like, no, you've forsaken me, Lord. You've forgotten me. You've abandoned your promise, and you forgot me. The word forget is stronger than our word for forget. I forget where I put my stuff all the time. And it doesn't matter how many little hooks or dishes or places 
we put all about the house for me to put my stuff in. I lose it, and then I go looking in all those little places, and you know what I do with that stuff? I lose the little dishes and the little hooks and the things like that to put my stuff on. But it's all very unintentional. It's all very unintentional. Okay? But what if, what if there's a period in your life that was characterized by pain? And you look back on that time and you change the subject in your mind because you don't want to reminisce over that period of turmoil and trial. You're deliberately changing the subject and forgetting it. You're putting it out of your mind. That's the idea. That's what they're accusing God of. You have deliberately put us out of mind. Now, listen to what the Lord's response to that is. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? He's The, the picture here is of a mother who's... Um, in the activity of nursing. It's not just a mother who is occasionally nursing her child, but think of a mother who's in the, in the um, act of nursing her child at that very moment. While she is doing that, while she's feeding her child, can she forget the child? Okay. Well, I'm sure some of you can conjure some pretty rotten mothers. You can think of a family member that's been hurt by a really awful mother. I've known a few. And so the Lord says, in general, a woman cannot forget her child as she's nursing him. But even if you can think of a woman who has... Even if you would like to cynically conjure the exception and say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. God breaks through and says, even these may forget. Even these may forget. Because humans are broken and sinful. They do awful things. And even they may forget. But I will not forget you. And how do you know I won't forget you? Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Now that is, that is a reference, of course, to John 20, 28. When the Lord, the resurrected Lord, in his glorified body, maintains the scars on his hands, that were put there by the cross. If ever you're wondering, does God love me? Does God care for me? Does God care about me? He bears scars on his hands because he suffered the punishment that you deserved. And embedded in those scars... I'm not saying literally, I don't know. But when he looks at those scars, he thinks of people. 
not just people, he thinks of you. There's a Puritan prayer. It's encouraging believers not to be afraid of the future. You know, many of us are like, okay, look, I know God saved me from my past sins. I know God's got heaven ahead for me. But what about today? I'm worried about today. I'm worried about tomorrow. And the Puritan prayer says this, that the God who has your tomorrow, not forever tomorrow, but like March 13th tomorrow, holds them, holds your day in nail-pierced hands. What a picture. He's already demonstrated how much he cares for you, and he has engraved your names on his hands. He says, your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Now, we're not going to read through these as carefully as we've been doing before, but we noted that this is this event where the Lord returns his people is going to come at the end of unimaginable war, unimaginable turmoil and upheaval. Uh, have, have you guys ever seen um, pictures of the French and German cities after the Allies rolled through them? Anybody seen pictures of those? Or have you ever seen pictures of the Russian side of things? Um, there's a town... Um, Kursk. It was the site of the largest tank battle in World War II. It was in the in Russia, the Russian city of Kursk. They still find, I mean, commonly, they commonly find unexploded rounds and tank uh, shells and unexploded artillery and human remains. The city was left a pile of rubble. Uh, Stalingrad was uninhabitable um, in the wake of Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That those cities couldn't be entered for, I don't know how long, but forever long because of the radiation of the nuclear weapon that exploded over them. War-torn, <laughs> unimaginable. That's what Jerusalem is going to look like. And God says, when you come back, you're going to look at this city and it's going to be destroyed. Ruins. Rubble. But it's surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. That's what he's talking about. When you come back, it's not going to be much to look at. Yet, verse 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, Within your lifetime, your kids are going to say, there's not enough room for us here. It, we've, we've prospered, we've, we've grown so much that this, this, there's not enough space. And it's the sort of irony that the Lord loves to deal in. He loves to trade in this sort of irony. The people that came back to war-torn ruins and saying, God forgot us. Those people are going to not talk anymore, but they're going to hear their children say, 
We need more space because of the blessing of the Lord. We're going to encounter this when we get to Exodus later this morning. I think in many ways our nation sees children as nuisances. Um, and I'm a father of five. I find socks just about everywhere in my house except on the feet of children, okay? I found a sock on top of my coffee pot this morning. It was Schaefer's. <laughs> Gracie, Gracie doesn't have any socks that match. Like, there's just this lunatic collection of socks because we can't find any pairs, okay? At night, after the kids eat, do your kids do this? At night, after the kids eat, they get this surge of energy and we have to turn the TV up to like 75, okay? After the kids go to bed, we'll turn the TV back on and it blares. It sounded normal when the kids were awake, but now it's too loud for any human to hear, to really be able to enjoy responsibly. <laughs> you know, kids have a lot of energy, um, in our, but our nation, our nation sees them as a nuisance sees them as things that get in the way of your prosperity. They get in the way of your mental health. They get in the way of your, of you. And in God's economy, children are a mark of prosperity and blessing. It's a visible marker of God's blessing on your life. We ought not think of them like the world does. And so here's a people that children were not, see, children are awesome, aren't they? <laughs> Perfect timing. That is a blessing, whoever that child is. I hope it's not ours. Doesn't sound like ours. No. Oh, it's Amos? Okay. What a blessing. <laughs> that that's Amos and not mine. <laughs> <laughs> now, God is saying, I, I'm going to bless you in, in invisible ways. You're going to hear it with your ears. God says, I'm going to lift up the hand of the nation and raise my signal to the peoples. He says that kings are going to be your foster parents. And when it comes time when all this is said and done and all my people are regathered in my city, you're going to stand there and say, where did all these come from? We didn't know there were this many of us. Because God isn't done telling the story. God is always doing way more things than we can comprehend, thousands upon thousands of things more than we comprehend, we can comprehend, and we're not entitled to know. But one day the whole story will be told, and our eyes will be opened, and like these people who say, queens were our nursing mothers, kings were our foster parents, then these people will stand and praise God for what he has done. Well,
Next week, we'll take up chapter 50, which is a beginning of another servant song. There's kind of a strong transition here. But suffice it to say, God is in Isaiah 49, as he was in Psalm 73, dealing with an age-old problem of my present doesn't match what you've said about my future. And when that's the case, God has some specific advice for you. And I would encourage you to read Psalm 73 or Isaiah 49 or many other psalms. Psalm 13 is another really good one. Psalm 120. (laughs) I could go on. Um, And Psalm 4, 7, um, 37. It's a common common theme through Scripture, and I would encourage you to study that out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to learn. Thank you for Isaiah 49. Thank you that one day you will restore these people, and even though they are accusing you of forsaking them and forgetting them, we know that you haven't. In fact, you've written them on the palm of your hands, and you care for them more profoundly than a nursing mother does for her child. May we look to you, our tender, nurturing God, who will never leave us or forsake us, who will never forget us. May we entrust ourselves to your care. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.